All right, guys, welcome to part three of the Hollow Audiobook, a four-part audiobook. Um, if you haven't listened to the first two parts, um, then you're like missing half a book, and uh, you're going to be a little confused. Again, this audiobook is completely free, completely shareable, completely likable, rateable, commentable, whatever you want to do with it, you can do it. And it's free because I want to share with you. And if you want to share with others, that would be rad for them, I think. It would be rad for me. And uh, so do it, please, right now. And uh, yeah, with that, I'm going to leave you with the story. Um, we just left Turner. He was doing some stuff. And prepare for him to do even more stuff. <laughs> Chapter 21 Turner had heard that all roads led to Ulgrad. That could only logically be true if all roads led to all other roads, of course. But the Uluk legions had built roads all along their many marches from the capital. Ulgrad sat like a spider in the center of a highway web, waiting patiently to spring down the line and devour its prey. Walking brought Turner back down to the dirt. In the train, he could almost forget that leagues passed under his feet. Not so when his feet had to do the work. A day's journey brought he and Hassan to the outskirts of Ulgrad. Traveling into the cities proper would take another day. Port Stilton lay atop a river delta and looked out into the peaceful harbor. It was the largest city Turner had ever seen, and it wasn't even a city. Black dots of returning fish trawlers skirted toward their docks and beaches. The sun was low in the sky and cast its long, yellow reflection all down the gulf. The only clouds came in cones from enormous steamships bearing flags of Uluk, Tora Evang, Bois, and Duskini. We better hurry, Turner said. We've got to find a place before dark. Dark? Hassan asked. Turner, can it be that you have never been to Port Stilton? This is the furthest I've been from home, Turner said. He tried to shrug, but the pain waved him off. It hadn't occurred to me, really. I'd read so much about these places we've been that they don't really shock me. Read? Dened, you should have saved yourself the trouble of coming to Ulgrad. You could have read about your father, and he could have read about you, and we would never have come to meet Catalysts or Redeemers or one another. Turner winced. Hassan could not have known how much pain those words caused. Sophia's book, the journal, to Turner and no one else, was gone. Not gone, Turner thought. The bandits could, conceivably, decide to read the book, though they were much likelier to use the book for rolling paper or personal hygiene. Turner winced again. You're worried about the book? What about Faye? The sun set. Turner began to understand what Hassan had been talking about. He remembered once reading that Port Stilton was built atop a seemingly endless reserve of natural gas. That wealth was piped directly through the pillars in the roadside, and blasted into the air with near enough heat and light to shame the sun. There was no last light. Every night in this city was a night of bright clouds, a thing not to be wasted. Let's ask around, Turner said. I'd hate to walk all the way into the city just to find out Jack was here all along. Monsway, we ought to be careful. Hassan cleared his throat and adjusted his glasses. <clears throat> talk begets talk. The Redeemers wouldn't dare. The Redeemers wouldn't dare, Turner said. The whole emancipation movement had been kicked off by redeemers dragging suspected runaways down the cobblestones of Ulgrad, one of whom, unluckily, 
had turned out to be a senator's son. It is not the redeemers who we must fear. Hassan took Turner by the elbow and turned him toward a well-lit public square. I believe they were soundly beaten by the catalysts, and the catalysts... Well, they make one wish for the days when the rebels would dress up in uniforms and declare themselves as such. Suddenly, every shadow seemed a threat. Turner followed Hassan without complaint. They came upon a parlor Hassan seemed to know. Its sign, which read, Rios Torre Vango, was shaped like an elaborate tobacco-smoking device. However, the fumes emanating from the open door had a sweet, tangy aroma that Turner had never smelled before. Turner hesitated outside. Is this safe? he asked. Even better than that, Hassan grinned. Follow me and do nothing. They had to pay two coins just to enter the parlor. Hassan seemed happy to do so. Turner marveled at the press of people. No one seemed to be ordering any drinks, and though a few larger parties sucked smoke directly from one of the strange metal devices, most seemed content to lounge around tables playing cards. There was more laughter than Turner had expected. So much, in fact, that Turner wondered if he was somehow an object of ridicule. Surely no one could see the dirt on his clothes in the dim gaslight. They pressed inward. Turner wondered if the patrons were laughing at the women in the room. Many women and girls were dressed in outfits that would have been laughable had they not been so scandalous. Turner averted his eyes from one such outfit, only for them to fall on another. He blushed. The women appeared to have breasts so large they seemed impractical. Even the thin women had flesh peeking up above their necklines. Hassan, Turner asked, is this a is this a place where women sell their bodies? Hassan stopped in his tracks. He looked back at Turner, his eyes wide. Feed, who do you take me for? He looked around, and his eyes softened. Ah, I see. Monsoy is not used to the uh latest styles. He'd led Turner by the hand, further into the crowd. It's not just the styles, Turner said. They're even shaped differently. Turner regretted the words as soon as they left his lips. He couldn't believe that he'd dare to be so crass. Hassan seemed to find this funny. Turner, darling, do you know what it is like when you grasp a ripe fruit too tightly? How it begins to ooze and pop, deformed from its natural state? There are outfits that can do that to a person. But why would a fruit ever want to pop? Turner asked. He was again shocked at his own brazen speech. Hassan laughed aloud. They don't. It is to appeal to lovers. Appeal, Turner said. A fruit peel. He laughed. What a terrible pun, he thought. But it's somehow terribly funny because of how terrible it is. What a strange place. Perhaps I'm just too tired. It is dark out. Feed, Hassan muttered. Suddenly, a thick bearded man leaned out of his booth and gripped Hassan by the wrist. Feed? Sunom feed? Hassan met the man's eye. The Ned, Kinon Evangel, the stranger set his lip. He was surrounded by five tough-looking men and two women with thick makeup, all of whom were dead-eyeing Hassan. The stranger spit on the floorboards. Kinon Evangel, que quieres torre monsoy? Because, Hassan replied, we are in Ulgrad and must speak their pig-cast excuse for our language. The stranger and all his companions burst forth in raucous laughter. So did Turner, for some reason. Turner and Hassan slipped into opposite ends of the horseshoe-shaped booth. Turner found himself next to a laughing woman with 
what looked like black soot all around her eyes. He and the woman nodded at one another before breaking into laughter again. What? <laughs> Turner gasped. What's so funny? The woman laughed. Haven't you got the most charming accent? You're not one of them, are you? The Torah of Ango? No, no. Turner liked how the woman sounded. He liked how she was looking at him, and how the black stuff around her eyes made it seem that she wasn't just looking, but staring. I'm not supposed to tell you where I'm from. The two laughed again. She pointed at his shoulder. What happened? Bit, Turner laughed. I can't even feel it. That's the nitrous oxide. The gas? How do you get that? She pointed down to the strange metal device. Easy. You gently heat ammonium nitrate. The fertilizer ammonium nitrate? So you're a farmer. We get it from the Rainbow Cauldron. Oh, why are we yelling? Why isn't everyone? Do you know what they call a question mark combined with an exclamation point? What? Interrobang! Oh, behave. Behave how? Turner was having such a great time exchanging inanities that he barely noticed the woman's hand creeping up his leg. Behave how, he repeated, this time with more urgency. You're new, said the woman. Turner was beginning to suspect that she was, at the very least, a friendly person. Very. Turner felt like he didn't have enough breath. Somebody ought to teach you about this place, said the friendly woman. She leaned on Turner's shoulder. I could educate you. And suddenly, the friendly woman wasn't there anymore. It was Dia Eve's corpse, leaning, no, pressing down on Turner with all her dead weight. She was bleeding up through her neckline, oozing out of her skin like a rotten peach, bursting with disease. Black flies framed her eyes, drinking her bloody tears. Her words came on breath like putrid eggs. You should come and be with me. Turner threw himself away. He rolled on the floor. Not enough breath. Everyone he knew was dead or gone, captured by the living or the dead. He should have died by the wolf or the bear. If only Smoker had just shot him in the back of the head, he might not have even noticed until he was floating with the divines, blown north and west to some better fate than this. He was crying. Someone put their hands on him. He swatted the hands away. Why am I here? he asked. I'll just ruin him too, and he won't even want me. How could he not want you? Hassan said. He pulled Turner up by the armpit. It was Turner's left armpit, but Turner didn't mind. He just wanted someone to touch him. Someone alive and real. Turner found himself under a bright light. The gaslight burned the saltwater air crisp and clean. He breathed as though he'd been drowning. He had been drowning. He didn't want my mom, Turner cried. If he loved mom, he would have stayed. If mom loved me, she would have stayed. You are loved, Monsieur. By who? Who hasn't left me? Everyone leaves, but not always because they want to. Now, look, we have broken some of your stitches. I'm sorry. Turner looked down. There was blood on his shirt. Why'd you tie them? You knew they'd break. Hassan removed his jacket and placed it over Turner's shoulders. There is that possibility. There is also the possibility of healing. I am sorry. I should have known that your trauma might... I should have kept you safe. It's my fault, Turner said. All of it. Hassan slapped Turner across the cheek. Turner stopped crying. He felt pain again. Just a little warmth on his skin, but 
enough to remind him that he could hurt. Why did you do that? Turner asked. Because pain has kept you going. Pain indicates that something is terribly wrong. Pain demands to be fixed. I can't fix it, Turner said. Hassan shook his head. You don't need to. You have Tesseret. You have me. You have Fay. You have your father. Turner shook his head. We don't even know where he is. Correction, Hassan said. You don't know where he is. Turner looked up. Hassan's spectacles danced with reflected firelight. I was trying to ask questions of people who would not be able to spread rumors in Uluk. Hassan looked around. I'm afraid I made more commotion than I intended. Turner stared at Hassan with hopeful eyes. They knew where to find him? How could they not? Hassan asked. The citizens call him Switchblade for the sake of Holy God, and he still rides a feed wolf. Chapter 22 Turner grew queasy as he made his way toward the Ursine circuit. He wasn't sure how much of his nausea was due to the nitrous oxide, and how much was due to his anxiety. The circuit will serve a dual purpose, Hassan noted. An entire audience will identify your father, and you will get to see if he's any good on a wolf. Turner scanned the crowded ground. The lupine circuit was still hundreds of meters away. Despite this distance, the building seemed almost to loom overhead. Resembling an octagonal ship, the lupine circuit was said to be the largest open-air theater on Earth. 3,000 feet long and 1,000 feet wide, Turner recited. I read... You read that in a feed book, yes, and you are always yourself like a book, always saying the same thing no matter how many times I bother with you. Hassan plunged into the crowd, this time making sure to look back at Turner every so often. The man had been more protective this morning and apologetic in his own brusque way. Turner grinned, and two thousand feet tall. Only at the obelisks, Hassan pointed to the five spires. Four stood at the corners of the stadium and one at its center. Wearing a three-foot hat would not make you six feet tall. I'm a bit over three feet. I'm an inch or two higher than you, Hassan. Yes, poor, poor Hassan is five feet plus change. But remember that if you are to ride a wolf, height is a disadvantage. Turner's heart leapt in his chest. He tried to dampen his expectations. I'm not going to ride a wolf. A few days ago, you were not going to travel to Ulgrad with the purpose of not meeting your father in order to not save your tesseret and the rest of your village. Fifteen merchants tried to sell Turner the genuine and gigantic Luke teeth on their way into the stadium. If Luke ever does return, Turner said, he's going to have a tough time eating without his fangs. Those teeth are fakes, carved from mammoth tusk, Hassan grumbled. Turner always found it funny how two people could say the same thing in different ways. The lupine circuit somehow looked larger from the inside. It reminded Turner of an opening flower, or the way bread sometimes cracked in the center when expanding. Commoners like Turner were funneled like water through a sluice, up and up through the stadium seating, every stair beneath their feet worn smooth and depressed like rocks in a river. They passed under the shadow of the famed central obelisk, the Ulsein Column. Turner marveled. The reliefs along the side of the hundred-foot column could be read even from ground level. 
The monument was alive with sculptures from the life of Ull and Luke. The bottom of the column showed Ull being adopted by Luke's den mother, a wolf whose name escaped Turner at the moment. Ull and Luke suckled at the same teat. Sharing their milk, Ull grew stronger and wilder, while Luke grew more loyal and intelligent. The two were never shown apart throughout the middle of the column. Together they raced the claw of Duskeny. Together they slaughtered the bear rider of Balu. Together they charmed the maiden of the sea, who brought Luke his seven bride dogs, the mothers of all future domesticated wolves. Himself childless, Ul erected a wallless city called Uluk, called forth the oppressed people of the ancient world, and bade them make a republic to stretch over the whole earth. That was the same story that could be found in the written divine, it was the story apparently refuted in the Hollow Fortress. The top of the column showed Ull and Luke dying together while protecting the Twins' gate against the Hundred Beasts. And though no one on the ground could see it, there was rumored to be a plaque on top of the column foretelling Ull and Luke's return in the Republic's hour of greatest need. Only when they found seats could Turner comprehend the scale of the arena, the circuit could house dozens of events, sports or otherwise, and the most popular were the hunts. There were one-on-one -on -one contests between wolves and other large animals, but that was not what the wolf was bred for. The Ulsine column supported a bridge straddling the stadium. The bridge was dotted with nobles and a few guards. If only I could get on that bridge, Turner said. I might be able to get his attention. You only call attention to your ignorance. Hassan said. Those guards are the wolf werod. They are selected from the hardest nomads of the far, unknown north. I could pretend to be a noble. Hassan laughed. Firstly, the wolf werod cannot speak Ulukin. This is by design. To them, you would sound like a yapping mutt, and they would treat you as such. Secondly, your attempt to fool the sheriff ended in failure most catastrophic. And that man had for his brains only a sack of marbles and a small sack at that. Of small marbles. If they can't speak my language, how can they tell my class? Hassan gestured to the crowd. Look around. Turner did so. He saw normal-looking people, a bit more rich and urbanized than the folks back home. They're just people from the city. Do they look like you? No, but how do they not look like you? Hassan snapped his fingers. Quick, three things. Turner shrugged, overwhelmed by what should have been a simple answer. Uh, hats, different hats, fewer teeth. He looked down at his new jacket and trousers. They're underdressed for the chill. No, wrong. Hassan shook his head. They have the same hats the people wore in the Lane Junction. They are not underdressed. It is only that your weak, crash skin is unused to cold of any kind. You and I have better teeth, but only because we live near the Rainbow Cauldron. Well, then I don't know. Exactly, Hassan touched his lips. Three years I spent learning your fool Uluk tongue in order to move goods overseas. I know this language forward and back, yet what is it that keeps me foreign in your eyes? Hmm? My accent? My outlook? Let me ask you, is it harder to learn a new language or forget an old one? I... Turner's brow furrowed in thought. Learning is hard, but forgetting something like language. 
That is how everyone in this crowd knows that I am from the island of Ivang. That is how they know that you are a rural peasant. It is not that you cannot learn how to dress and speak and hold your head high like a nobleman. No, those things are hard, but doable. To forget how to be a peasant from Keresh? To forget that you ought to bow your head when a noblewoman passes? To forget that a nobleman can end your life with a word? This is impossible. But Faye can pass as gentlefolk. Faye is not a peasant. Yes, she is. Not in its heart. It may be branded a slave, but it is never, never thought of itself as anything less than noble. Turner frowned. Why? Hassan opened his mouth, then closed it. He looked toward the arena. Look, he said. Look down at the flags, but do not cheer. Turner followed Hassan's gaze. A man exploded into the arena atop a galloping white horse. The horse was coated in red dust and left puffs of fiery smoke in its wake. He carried a spear hung with a flowing red ribbon. A third of the crowd, and some of the nobles, erupted in cheers. Turner heard a chanted song among the celebrants, but could not make out the words. The Reds are the favorites to win, Hassan said. Those cheering likely have money on that prospect. Why shouldn't we cheer? Because there are six teams, Turner nodded, and were surrounded by fans of unknown allegiance. You would make five rivals for every one friend. Fewer. My father is on the blue team, correct? What's their chance to win? The same chances Ul and Luke are returning. Turner sighed. I can't help but hope. Unfortunately, neither can I. More horses emerged from gates leading into the arena. Orange, yellow, green, violet, blue. Aren't there seven colors? Turner asked. For the seven wolf mothers? Each of the colors has different noble patrons, Hassan replied. Black is the color supported by Alpha Magnus. Oh, Turner said. It is illegal to say what you are thinking, Turner. Uluk has no kings, not even in secret. Hassan's smile was cruel. It is the will of the people that Alpha Magnus has been counsel for your entire lifespan. The nobles would lose to him intentionally? Even wolves know when to roll over and show their bellies. Who supports Blue? Several grand houses, the Lee, the Kruok, others. The patron of your father is the Borer family, what we call in Torre Vang Nuvkai, or newly rich. So rich that they had to be allowed into the nobility to prevent them financing election reform. Will they let my father leave if he wants to help me? That depends on his performance today. More important is this question. Will they let go of the wolf? A thrill of youthful rebellion arose in Turner's heart. They will. I'll make them. He looked down to the opening gates. The crowd pounded the stones and beat the air. Turner rose with the rest as if carried by a rising tide and the wolves burst onto the dirt. Red, orange, yellow, green, violet, blue. Turner's eyes were fixed on the five wolves with blue ribbons flowing from their saddles. The figures on their back wore naught but metal from head to toe and at this distance looked all alike. Do you know why they cheer? Turner thought. Today, father, you fight for me. Chapter 23 the Ephractes and their wolves did a turn around the walls that surrounded the arena. 
Even from the highest seats, Turner could hear their pounding and panting. The riders called out to the crowd and to one another, and the crowd called back, and Turner could hear nothing but the pure, indistinct emotion that charged the air. The wolves trotted amidst their pack to the center column. As one directed by their riders, of course, the wolves dipped their heads and tucked tail in submission to their long-dead forefather. Then, as if released by their knights, the wolves lifted their heads and began to growl. Every man and every woman, though there were few, fell silent. Turner felt the echoes of the growl and remembered the hearthfall, remembered that his mother and everyone else was still missing in some far-off land. Then the wolves lifted their heads and howled. To Turner's surprise, every head in the stadium, no matter their rank, lifted their heads and wailed in imitation. Turner joined in. Suddenly he felt at one with the Uluk. He felt at one with everything. Every Uluk stone and stream, every Uluk tree and their leaves, they were his, his to share, with his brothers and sisters of Uluk. Suddenly this nation was not one to which Turner belonged. Suddenly this nation belonged to him. Silence fell again. An announcer walked onto a gangway above the midfield bridge. Uluk, he cried. We... The man said more, but Turner couldn't make out his words. He looked to Hassan, who shrugged. The nobles seemed to care about what the announcer was saying, and he was saying it with great gusto. All the wolves and riders left the field, save those from the yellow and blue teams. How appropriate, Hassan said. The yellow team owners are all Keresh. The team actually had to sit out the civil war. Just one more reason to root for Jack Switch. Turner stared down at the blues. His father was one of those five. Was he the swaggering rider on the rust-colored wolf, or the grim one on the brown? He tried not to guess. Better not to get invested and disappointed. What's the prey? Turner asked. It is a surprise, Hassan said. Only the Offa family knows, as they buy the animals. Mysteriously, the houses favored by Offa always seem prepared for the surprise animal. Turner watched as the wolves congregated on either end of the ovular arena. They wore spring saddles that doubled as armor. No wolves were supposed to die today, but accidents did happen. There would, however, be blood. Gates opened behind each pack of wolves. Two frightened animals were shooed onto the dirt. The crowd cheered. Aurochs! If the wolves were the size of horses, the aurochs were the size of stagecoaches. Gigantic, well-muscled steers, the beasts had horns the size of lances, even after their tips were removed for safety. An aurochs looked more than capable of holding itself against a lone wolf. Yet, no wolf went on the attack. The yellow wolves had behind them an aurochs with a yellow ribbon around its neck. The blue wolves, a blue-ribboned aurochs. The goal was to defend one's own creature while hunting that of the other pack. The bulls pawed the dirt. The crowd rose to drink their fear. The wolves and riders made a cautious advance toward their opponents. Nobles began tossing out long, smooth poles. They flew like javelins off the midfield bridge. Some poles fell impotent and lay flat on the dirt. One snagged on a nobleman's sleeve. The small barbs on the otherwise dull lances betrayed their true purpose, to grip and tear flags off of an opponent's mount, thereby removing the wolf and rider from the game. 
The more wolves one could remove, the safer it would be to chase and kill the enemy Arak. Some of the barbed lances touched down upright like proud flags. These were pulled up by the riders, and the crowd cheered the nobles for their small part in the warrior's victory. Turner had read that all noble families descended from proud knights, but their fine dress told that they were descendants far removed. The blue pack of wolves favored their right flank while the yellow band played a deep zone defense. Roll em up! Roll em up! chanted the blue supporters. Perhaps in reference to the nickname Blue Wave. The yellow fans were louder, perhaps, but had no unified chant. Turner knew that the blue team would win. He couldn't say why, but he knew. There was a unified charisma throughout the stadium, a blue energy, unseen, intangible, but real on a spiritual level. The Blues' weak side sprang forward. Yellow defenders tried not to take the bait, yet once the lone blue wolf was inside enemy ranks, the opportunity proved too great to resist. This lone blue mount had a gray coat with a somewhat friendly coloring. Two yellow wolves moved to face that one. The yellow auroch bucked its blunted horns, spoiling for a fight if the wolf should try its luck. While this was happening, the blue team pressed their territory past the midfield line. Their Arak looked alone and exposed. The yellows looked cramped, despite still owning two-fifths of the ground. The two-on-one battle was proceeding with caution, with one yellow protecting its Arak, while the other circled to hit its prey from the side. The crowd despised yellow's caution. They screamed for blood, or its symbolic equivalent. As if spurred by the crowd rather than their riders the two yellow wolves charged. They were moving too fast for a wolf's usual play-fighting and posturing. These wolves would not nip at their opponent from a distance. They're trying to knock him off, Turner said. Intentionally unseating a rider would result in disqualification for the offending wolf, but the rider thrown a dozen feet through the air would probably lose more than that. That said, the hope was that the outnumbered man would lose his nerve and flee. The lone blue wolf charged between his two attackers. This move went against every instinct of a wolf. The maneuver required the daring of a rider who demanded unwavering loyalty from his beast. Turner watched in awe as the rider pushed his hound deeper and deeper into the pincer until the yellow wolves were forced to turn and chase him. All three headed toward the Arak. It was then that Blue made their move. The air was nothing but screaming. Turner could barely hear his own shouts of joy as the blue team swarmed forward. They left only one wolf in shallow defense while the rest buzzed the thin yellow line. Three on three, these attackers had the advantage of first movers. The blues fell silent. A yellow defender lifted his pole in victory. He'd snagged one of the blue flags, pulling it clean of its slipknot. An expert strike. Even the blue fans could not deny the player his respect, though it seemed to have complicated the blue team's strategy. Now, five on four, the mood of the stadium shifted. The blue fans cheered in desperation rather than bloodlust. The yellow fans only had curious optimism. Turner could feel that their hopes had been too often dashed to risk hoping blindly. The blues pulled their defender. Their Arox stood alone, and a yellow striker made his move. The crowd held its breath as the yellow wolf covered hundreds of meters in moments, only to come near the blue Arox's horns and shy back. The bull bellowed and held its ground. The yellow wolf tried to get around its prey. The Arak turned to face the attack, head on, unshaken. Ooh, Van, look! shouted the blues.
Turner knew that he'd been right. His father's blues would win. Uven Luke! Uven Luke! Uven Luke! Brave beast, worthy prey. Unless put to flight or flanked, the blue Auroch wouldn't take a scratch. Meanwhile, the blue wolves swarmed about like wasps, evading their pursuers and pursuing the Auroch. The yellow bull Auroch could not tell his defenders from his attackers. At last, and despite his size, the prey panicked. The bull ran, and the wolves ran him down. The yellow team snagged another blue flag, but by then it was too late. The blues nipped and clawed. Blood ran with sweat down the yellow Auroch's flanks. Fear rolled in its wide eyes. Disgust mixed with excitement inside of Turner, so that he almost began to associate the two. A few more of these fights and he wouldn't be able to go without them. Turner looked away. Everyone was on their feet but Hassan, so Turner sat down beside him. Well, Turner said, if that can happen, maybe Luke can return. I do not know why he would want to. Turner could tell by the singing and cursing that the contest was over. The yellow Auroch was dead, and the other would be sacrificed, its soul freed to the winds. The priests say that both died in service, Turner said. The priests say that both will be human in the next life. I wonder, Hassan said, if hunters are reincarnated as prey. The crowd had not yet taken its seat. There was murmuring, not of victory and defeat, but of confusion. Turner stood again. A white wolf from the yellow team was stalking behind the dead Auroch. Its rider held up a torn blue cloth on the end of his lance. He was shouting something. The rider lowered his lance at a gray wolf with blue flags and a red mouth. Turner saw that all of its flags were intact. The yellow rider hurled insults that could be heard in the highest seats. I think, Turner frowned, I think one of them cheated. Either the yellow or the blue brought an extra flag, Hassan said. He was standing now, smiling. This hunt, it is a tribal, trivial thing, worth naught but prizes. Hassan raised his fist before his face, as though grasping some long-awaited prize. But a rider's honor, that is his tesseret. The yellow rider removed his helmet and tossed it onto the ground. The crowd cheered the rider's name. Call Black! Call Black! There would be a duel today, and perhaps they would see more than animals die. The accused rider looked down at the discarded helmet. He did not seem to notice the crowd's chanting. Switchblade! they cried. Switchblade! Switchblade! Turner looked down at his father. So far away and so covered in armor, Jack Switch looked like a toy. Turner wasn't sure what he was feeling. Jack had ridden his gray wolf into the thick of battle. He might also have gotten the kill, but had Jack cheated? Would he kill and die for his honor? Jack Switch shook his head and turned his wolf toward the exit. Turner sat down hard. After a shocked silence, the crowd began to boo. Chapter 24 It wasn't hard to find Jack Switch, Turner only had to follow the mutterings of shame and ridicule. The yellow fans followed with a low grumble at first. It would take a foolish man indeed to provoke an Ephractus riding a wolf. No man had to break the relative silence in the end, because a woman did it for them. 
Cheater! Thief! called a woman from an upstairs window. Jack Switch kept his helmet on. He was neither stooped nor upright as he rode his wolf down the cobbles. His wolf, besides a prick of the ears, was just as stoic. More taunts came. Coward! Pretender! Then one cry struck a chord with the crowd, and the cry became a chorus. Switch flag! Switch flag! Switch flag! Turner's face burned with sympathetic shame. These yellow fans had little standing when it came to calling someone a turncoat. Yellow was, after all, the team of Kiresh and traitors to Uluk. How can he stand it? Turner whispered. He cannot, Hassan answered. But he must. The wolf and its rider, and its train of followers, met a steep incline. The city had four hills at its corners, and a fifth in its center. It was this center hill where the great lords and ladies made their home, some out of desire, others out of obligation. Up ahead were four rail tracks which ran two steam trolleys running all the way up to Ool's Keep. Turner might have marveled at the strange clacking trolleys had he not been so entranced by his goal. Turner began to climb with the others. This road was long and steep. Turner felt just how steep after a few pumps of his legs. How do people climb this hill? They do not, Hassan said. But we must. The yellow fans pushed further and further up the hill. Turner followed in their midst. Some of the more nervous yellows dropped away at the sign of the first middle-class homes and shops. Turner didn't know much of Olgrad, but he knew, instinctively, that he and these other peasants did not belong in this neighborhood. Every home and storefront was painted a different and pastel color. All bunched together in small, winding, dead-end streets in a way that reminded Turner of peapods. Next came glints of gold. The whites of ivory and pearls dazzled the corners of his vision. The crowd of yellow team supporters was half of its original number. Serious-looking men in dark clothes watched the crowd from the alleyways. They might be the hyenas, brutal breakers of unions and racketeers. They might even be the new force of professional deputies, Ulgratters called constables. Turner's legs burned. He began to pass high, vine-covered walls. These were not the city fortifications, but the bulwark of neighborhoods and mansions. Marcus had never needed a wall to keep Turner from his house. The wall between Turner and the big house had been implied, understood. Things must be desperate for the poor in the city to require these physical barricades and guards where laws and customs should have sufficed. The man on the wolf had ignored a custom as old as Ulgrad itself. Why didn't he duel? Turner wondered aloud. Hassan panted between every other word. Because he is a dishonorable, mole-nosed sod-sucker, and wants everyone to know it. Turner shook his head. That doesn't feel right. Of course not, Hassan waved Turner ahead. You go on alone. I will meet you at the top, or maybe you should come back down here and meet me. Alone? Turner looked around. The yellow team's fans had dispersed. Turner now had the undivided attention of three men in dark suits. Turner struggled on after the wolf. Just when he thought it would pull out of sight, the wolf would slow or move aside for one of the trolleys. Turner winced with every step. If he ended up finding where his father lived, he'd arrive sweating and panting. 
He jogged when he could, he walked when he had to. Finally, the wolf took a ride into one of the walled complexes and disappeared. No, Turner wheezed to himself. No, wait. He stumble ran to a pair of closing wrought iron gates. He took a knee before the clattering cage. Too late, he thought. Say it. Turner looked up at the voice. Jack Switch was staring down at him. The wolf rider had his helmet tucked beneath his arm. His free hand was busy unstrapping his breastplate. You want to say something. You worked hard to get here, so say it. The duel, Turner dissolved into weak, wheezing coughs. Jack shook his head. He turned his wolf away from the gate and prepared to ride on. You did the right thing, Turner said. That was your way, my mother said. Jack turned. He looked back down at Turner. This time, he was less annoyed than curious. You could have preserved your honor, Turner said, but you would have had to kill or be killed. Jack's face was stone. I think you only did what you did because you knew you didn't cheat. You knew that patience would bring the truth. Jack did not smile or nod. Your mother? He asked. She knew you. She has the advantage of me. Turner met his father's eyes. He opened his mouth to speak. His throat closed up. Jack's eyes deepened. He swung off of his saddle. In three steps, Jack was in arm's reach of the gate. Turner took in every facet of the man. The sun-dark skin was Turner's. The eyes were not. The hair was Turner's. The implacable statue. The intimidating frame. Those were not Turner's. And he might have wilted in its presence. What is your name? Jack asked. Turner. Your mother knew me, Turner? Knows, yes, Turner said. He suspected tears were only moments away. He cleared his throat. Sophia, a woman in... Koresh, yes. Something almost like shock came to Jack's tempered eyes. She has a son, then. Is Sophia well? She... Turner paused. He had so much to say, but had no idea in what order to say it. The two stared at one another in silence. They were of a height, though Jack held himself better. She needs help. If that bothers you... Jack motioned to the gatekeeper. No need to speak through a cage, young Turner. The iron gate opened. Jack motioned Turner inside and turned toward his stables. Turner and the wolf followed. You've met wolves before, Jack noted. His accent bridged the gap between middle and low Ulican. Stylish, but approachable. Rare for a peasant, though I wouldn't put anything past Sophia's son. Yes, Turner said. I even rode one, once. He looked over at the gray beast. The wolf was fog-gray with expressive yellow eyes. His coloration was almost friendly, with sanguine black eyebrow fur and a beard of white around his grinning lips. What's its name? Pup. Is that a joke? He was my last mount's runt. The mother died and her pup wasn't like to survive. Didn't name it. Never have. Your last mount? Named Godmother. That was a term of affection. Jack looked back at Turner. You don't need to prove to me that you're Sophia's son. I can tell. But you can't, Turner thought. You can't tell whose son I am. Jack led his wolf to a shaded grass pen. In its center, atop a large concrete slab, 
was a gigantic plucked bird carcass which Turner couldn't identify. Jack clicked his tongue, and the wolf dashed forward. The hound pulled apart the meat with its paw and teeth and began its feast. We pack the innards with vegetables. Wolves aren't strict carnivores. Still expensive. Jack sat down on a bench and began to undo more of his armor. Beneath the thin plate there was chain mail, leather, and a padded jack. Turner hadn't realized just how much extra weight and bulk the man was carrying on his shoulders. How expensive. Two. Not a good business venture, he gestured to the complex. This all belongs to my patron. She doesn't like the games, but every noble needs fingers in the circuit. It keeps me and the dog fed, anyway. Turner gestured to Jack's armor. What if you get hurt? I get paid. I'm insured. Dog is too, and he's worth a better payout than me. Jack waved Turner off, refusing his help. He kept peeling off layers and spoke offhanded. Tell me what Sophia needs, and you'll have it. Turner sat on the bench beside Jack. You just said... What's expensive is somebody who will show up and save your life. I couldn't pay her then. I can now. There was little emotion in Jack's voice. Whatever charity he thought he was offering Turner came with no conditions or resentment. You don't know what I'm asking, Turner said. Jack looked up without raising his head. He looked like his wolf in that moment, with head bowed and his eyes half shrouded. What exactly would I hold back from Sophia, young Turner? What do I have that your mother did not give to me? You don't know what she needs, Turner said. Jack looked away. He rested his elbows on his knees and looked down to his feasting wolf. He took a deep breath, then let it out again. Your... He paused. Your mother never wanted a coin from me, young Turner. That's what she said. Her pride and mine met an impasse, I guess, where neither would accept charity from the other. If they'd found me in her care, she and her family would have ended up something worse than dead. I knew that. Tried to run away. Almost died again. She saved me again. I hated that. Hated being in her debt. You were fighting for our freedom, Turner said. Jack started to say something, then stopped. When he began again, he spoke in clear, careful sentences. I was doing what I thought was right. Slavery, I came to realize that slavery was evil, and I'd always disliked it, but I was fighting for things other than your freedom, things I valued more at the time. The result is the same. Damn the result. The intention matters. The intention is... Jack closed his eyes. Listen, all that's to say that without Sophia... I'd have filled some crow's belly. Sophia risked her life for me, her life and more. It's my privilege to repay her in some way. Turner flushed with relief. Here was honor, honor and more. His father would follow him without question. His father would embrace his son without question and Turner would embrace him back. Jack was worthy. A squeal rang out across the grounds. Turner looked toward the sound and saw a young girl racing their way. She ran directly at Jack's legs, and he swooped her up to keep her from banging her head on the bench. Jack's stone visage was gone, replaced with a warm grin. Turner looked up in horror. Two boys followed close behind their sister, 
pausing from time to time to chase one another around their mother's skirts. The woman was nearly Sophia's age, and heavy with child. He didn't need to ask. Jack Switch had another family. A real one. Chapter 25 Money, Hassan fumed. He gave you money? That's all I asked for, Turner said. Head hung, Turner felt a heaviness behind his eyes. It's more than his family could afford. Two envelopes of money sat between them on a knee-high stone wall. Even at night, and even in this spacious hillside park, it was best to keep bank bills hidden. Hassan spat, his spectacles shone in the gaslight. What a monstrous fool you are. When you need a family, you turn it away. He has... Turner closed his eyes. He has too much to lose. They looked down on the city. The city at night reminded Turner of fireflies. The thick seaside atmosphere of Ulgrad made its gas lamps seem to dance from this hilltop. The sea from this distance was a great blot of ink, dotted every so often by a drifting sky hearth. One of the bright clouds exploded far offshore, and the sound took seconds to push across the city. Hassan spit again. You should have told him the truth and let him decide. Hassan would be sailing tomorrow for Ivang by the way of Torah. The sister islands saw a lot of trade this time of year, and Hassan felt ready to quit the mainland. I told him we had trouble, and the money could help. And it can. We are a ten-minute walk away. You can still correct your mistake. I can, but I won't. Turner tapped his own envelope. This is enough to find the hollow fortress. Maybe I could buy some night harvest and pay justice back for what Smoker did. Do not do that, Smoker said. When you buy night harvest, you can only buy enough to kill a rat. That's only enough to make someone sick. No chemist would be so unscrupulous. Well, I'll just have to go to two chemists. There can only be one in each town. You would need an accomplice to buy a second batch, a third batch even. And this I am not willing to do for you. Turner shook his head. You're not a chemist. I am a fence. I sell night harvest, but even I do not double doses. Regardless, Turner pushed Hassan's envelope down the wall. This is for getting me here. Money. Money. Five years on this crapping in my nostrils continent, and all I have is money. Hassan ran his hands through his hair. I will likely never see you or Fay again. You will both be dead, and I will have money. You can use it to start a family. Yes, it will buy me a family the same way it bought me out of prison. Fool. And what good is a feed wife or child if they do not ask for help when their lives are at risk? He... Turner thought of Adele, Hud, and Eli Switch. He thought of Kieran Switch and the baby inside her. He would not tear Jack away from the family he'd meant to have. Jack was a good man. Turner and Sophia might have destroyed everything good in this good man's life. Turner could see now why Sophia had kept away from Jack, and why Turner must keep away from him now. Turner found a way to lie without lying, as he had with Jack. There is a reason Jack turned down the duel. He has something more important than honor. I knew, Hassan said. Turner looked up. The man's spectacles magnified his sad, hopeless eyes. I knew... Hassan repeated, about his family, about his home, all of it. I knew that if you knew, you would never tell him who you are or what you aim to do. 
Turner scowled and looked away. You were right. I also knew that Jack has to know, and that you'll have to tell him. No, I can do this on my own. No one can do anything on their own. Turner rose to his feet. He took his share of the money. It was enough to buy a gun and a horse. He would find Faye, and the two of them would find the hollow fortress, and Jack Switch would go on living in a world where he didn't have to worry about his greatest mistake. No one would know. If you do not tell him, Hassan said, someone else will. Turner looked down on him. No one knows but me. And me. And whoever else, Sophia told. She told no one. Not even me. She wrote it. Sophia wrote it in a book. Turner hadn't thought about the book in days. Fool, Turner whispered. Damn me for a fool. He looked up the hill. A ten-minute walk, Hassan had said. A four-minute run. Maybe it would be enough. The Kiresh Separatists. The Yellow Team. Sophia wrote about it in a book. Goodbye, Hassan, Turner said. I'll do the right thing. He took off into the night, his heart already racing with fear. Chapter 26 The gas lamps gave Turner hope. There was an aura on the horizon, too small to be a sunrise, too warm to be a sky hearth. Turner couldn't help but notice that the aura was coming from Jack Switch's home. Turner hoped it was only the gas lamps, but some part of him knew that hope was false and cruel. He rounded the corner, flame twisted up from within Jack's walls, forming a cyclone of smoke and ash. Horns blasted from the temple minarets, and voices, some panicked, some crying, echoed down every street. Turner finally understood why the priests called fire and lightning damnation. Damned souls were those so filled with bitter anger that they destroyed themselves in the process of destroying others. Turner screamed in rage, rage against the fire, rage against himself. He still dared to hope. The family might have escaped. Though his energy was near spent, he sprinted toward the gate. There, he spotted a flurry of activity. A bucket brigade was ferrying water to the surrounding homes. A horse-drawn wagon that looked like a large barrel was spraying nearby roofs to keep them from catching. Finally, he saw them. The outlines of adults and children, all gathered around a flatbed cart. Turner rejoiced. There would be no reason for children to be at this scene unless they'd escaped the fire. He jogged toward the flatbed cart. His hope was not lost. He saw Kieran Swift cradling her belly. He saw her and the children weeping. Of course, they just lost their home, but... Why were they looking down at the cart when the cause of their pain was still blazing? Turner saw what was in the cart. He covered his mouth to hold back the scream. Jack Swift lay on the bed of the cart. His chest was rising and falling in a way that told of deep, pained breathing. His skin was black in some places, red in others. In some places, his skin had been fused with his clothes. A doctor was speaking with a tall, somewhat robust noblewoman. But why was Jack inside? The woman answered. Why was Jack dressed in a blanket? The noble's matter-of-fact tone seemed out of place, but so did her presence. The doctor nodded to the cart. From what I can tell, he soaked a stable blanket in water before going in. The doctor pointed at Adelswitch, the youngest of Jack's children. She was crying loudest of all. Her left leg was bandaged from the ankle down. The girl burned her foot 
and fell down on the inside. The father went back in after her. Turner crept toward the cart. He was weeping. He didn't know if the family would resent his unexpected presence. He didn't care. Yet the girl is not burned, said the noblewoman. She had the stilted tongue of high society, and Turner wanted, suddenly, to knock that tongue out of her mouth. The father took the blanket off himself and wrapped it around the girl. Then came the backdraft. Backdraft? Fire needs air. A wall fell down, or a window burned open, and air rushed in. Turner stood at the foot of his father's deathbed. The man would not live. That might be a mercy, considering his wounds. Jack was speaking to his wife. She cradled his hand to her cheek and washed him in her tears. This was Jack's one and only love. Sophia was an accident. Who is the boy? crowed the noblewoman. Turner looked up. All eyes shifted toward him. He looked back to Kieran's switch. The mother stammered. He's, he's some boy we met today. Constable, said the noblewoman. The boy might be the arsonist. Hog-tie the boy and keep the boy for questioning. No, Turner whispered. No, wait. It wasn't him, said a rasping voice. Jack shifted beneath his wife's hand. Let him be. Well then, said the constable. Who is he? Jack took a long, croaking breath. He's my son. Turner stared at his father. He looked up at Kieran's switch. The woman met Turner's eyes and nodded. She knew. She'd known. He... You knew, Turner said, moving to Jack's side. How did you know? Your mother told you. About me. Jack sounded like a man dying of thirst. His eyes were open, but unseeing. Why would she? Unless... Turner looked up at Kieran again. The woman nodded. Jack told me about your mother. We never knew about you. She looked down. Jack coughed. <clears throat> I'm sorry. My intention. He began to cough again. This time there was something wet and stinking in his breath. There was a huff, followed by a cry of alarm. Turner looked up. He was surprised how close the wolf had come without being noticed. Its walk was ponderous, and it paused to shake its head and sneeze. Something heavy fell from its mouth. Madam, said the doctor, I would venture to say we found our arsonist. The noblewoman's voice was wroth. Find out who the creature was. This is an attack on the burr as well. My wolf pup, Jack said. The wolf stalked forward. It whined as it dipped its head over the cart. Jack's hand moved from his wife to his wolf. Turner, he said. Your hand. Turner touched his father's hand. Both hands shook. You said that you rode a wolf once. Yes, Turner said. Then he is yours, Jack shivered. His hand slipped back onto his chest. My son... I never meant. Jack went silent. He shook until he died. Chapter 27 Turner had not expected to sleep so well. The noblewoman's name had turned out to be Burbrenna. Burbrenna had turned out to be rather kind. 
The Burr family were new to nobility and couldn't help but see their underlings as human beings. Everything in the Burr villa was new and wonderful. Turner had fallen asleep in a bed like the Diaz slept in. He'd taken a bath in gas-warmed water. He'd eaten fresh bread topped with eggs and cheese, all seasoned with some exotic spice. These heavenly pleasures were not only lost in his grief, but actually made him feel worse. He ought to be tortured for his failure, not comforted. He could not, therefore, refuse Kieran's request to meet on the grass outside. Kieran heard Turner's explanation of events. Turner told Kieran about the book his mother had written and how it had fallen into Dia Marcus's hands. He told her about what had happened in the past few days and how he believed that Dia Marcus would want to eliminate Turner and anyone who might help him. And as they sat together on the stone bench, and as Kieran's children threw things and sat on the grass and looked up at the sky with wide, lost eyes, Kieran began to shake her head. No, she said. That's not correct. Turner looked up at Kieran. The woman, his stepmother, he supposed, was only days away from the birth of her next child. In the waving shadows of the vine-covered trellis, she looked as numb and unyielding as stone. A wolf rider staged a false controversy to goad Jack into fighting. If they'd only wanted Jack dead, they might have chosen an easier path. Poison, Turner said, remembering the Diaz. Jack would have died in disgrace had Pup not killed the arsonist. This is part of something larger than you and I, Kieran said. Some grand, foolish enterprise. Turner nodded. Perhaps, he thought. I should have... How could you know? Kieran said. You're not like them. You wouldn't kill for the privilege of keeping slaves. Even if you'd known... What would we have done? She glanced at him for a brief moment. She had not looked at Turner much. Turner understood. You should ride the wolf, Kieran continued. It's of no use to our family, she blushed. I'm sorry, I didn't... Turner shook his head. It's fine. I've done far worse to your family. You've done nothing of this sort to my family. To our family. If dear Marcus read that book, he knows that a Republic spy was resting peacefully on his own plantation all through the war. A shame best stamped out. I was a fool. You got that from your father. She glanced at Turner again. What kind of man runs into a burning building? I can think of no other name but fool. The two finally met one another's eyes. It was the first time they'd managed to do so in any amount of time. Kieran took a deep breath. Fool or no, you have your father's kindness. You kept your relation secret for my sake. I am proud of you. If you would, if you wish to stay, you know why I came. Kieran lowered her eyes. Yes, perhaps that is why I had the courage to ask. I'm sorry. I promise I'll be able to, to understand you more when time passes. Thank you, Turner readied himself to stand. Give what you have to the baby, I think. I think what I need is to care for my mother. I think so, too. Turner looked down at the city. I don't think I can win. The world was so big, so complex. I don't even know where to start. 
Winning doesn't matter, said the widow. Your father knew he would die in the fire. He knew he would die in the war. He knew he had failed me. Yet he admitted his failure, and he was sure I'd divorce him. He just kept doing the right thing. No winning, no losing. Just right intent. Turner nodded. What will you do? Rely on the Burr's hospitality for as long as that lasts. Burr Brenna's voice rang out across the lawn like a minaret horn. Turner Switch! Burr Brenner requires the presence of Turner Switch! Turner looked to the voice. His eyes widened. There, beside the large noblewoman, stood Hassan Kour. Hassan Kour has heard of the plight of the Switch family, said Burr Brenna. Hassan Kour is said by the Tordevang to be very well connected in the marketplaces of Ulgrad. Burr Brenna hereby authorizes Hassan Kour to make purchases in the name of Burr Brenna. Hassan gave Turner the palm-out salute. Turner switch, I presume. Turner returned the gesture. He bowed to Burr Brenna. If I may be so bold, she nodded. Turner switch may. What purchases have you authorized him, Hassan, to make? Turner Switch has expressed a desire for vengeance upon those who have offended the Burr family, and Hassan Kour has offered to guide Turner Switch in this endeavor. Burr Brenna lifted her lip in a sneer, and Turner could see the businesswoman she'd been before her nobility. And do make Burr Brenna a promise. If Dia Marcus has a heart... Feed it to the wolf. Chapter 28 Turner and Hassan stood before Pup's cage. Late-day sunbeams shone down on the sad creature like spotlights. He was more Jack's son than I ever was, Turner said. The dog hadn't been eating much since the previous evening, and Turner suspected that he and the dog shared the same call to action. Hassan made a clicking sound with his tongue. Now it is yours. How will you discipline it? How will you make it do as you wish? Turner sighed. I don't know that I can. He shifted inside his father's armor. It was heavy and cumbersome. It was ill-fitted, and it smelled. Turner trudged to the cage. Pup had also dressed himself, though wolves could not tie straps to hold it in place. They were trained to crawl into their armored saddles. Pup certainly wanted to ride into battle. It remained to be seen if he'd allow Turner to ride along. Turner opened the cage door. The stables were Pup's home, and the bars on its windows and doors were less to keep Pup inside than to keep others outside. The wolf stared as Turner waddled forward, nearly losing his balance with each step along the floorboards. Turner flinched when Pup leaned his snout forward to sniff the armor and the strange boy inside. When Pup's inspection was done, he sat back on his haunches. The dark eyebrow shapes above his eyes went cockeyed. What's this? Pup seemed to ask. I'm... Turner shook his head. Listen, we both know I'm not him. Turner pulled off his helmet and laid it before the wolf. You'd probably be better going alone. The wolf cocked its head. Then, leaning forward, it licked Turner's hairline. Turner was too scared to shy away. The wolf backed up again, sniffing, and Turner felt his tangled hair lying wet against his forehead. 
He pulled the drool away from his scalp. The two stared at one another, neither sure of what to make of the other. Do you think he's too compliant? Turner asked. I think that it is already eaten one month's way and disliked the taste. Hope so. Turner moved like a sloth, careful not to alarm the wolf. He began unstrapping Jack Switch's armor. If he lets me ride, I'll ride like the bandit did. Turner removed his medal, piece by piece, until he was down to his riding clothes. He stepped forward again. This time, he didn't flinch, and the wolf sniffed him from head to toe. Instead of lifting its head, Pup crouched down on his stomach and offered his stout neck to Turner. He's so... he knows what to do. Turner crept forward. He took Pup's armored collar and latched it shut. While Turner worked his way down the rest of the armor, Hassan jabbered away. I checked the local newspaper. It is mostly filled with news regarding us. Turner frowned. Us? Not you or me, per se. News of a disturbance back in your village, though none will admit the extent of it, followed by news of a delay in trains from Elaine Junction, followed by breathless news of the train robbery. For they could not hide what so many witnessed, but they report nothing after. No word of Diamarchus, the Redeemers, or Catalyst. Either they all killed each other, or Marcus found the hollow fortress place you have been talking about. I doubt both stories. And yet you believe yourself capable of discovering the place for which you have only a name and an intuition. Yes. On what basis? Turner attached Pup's last strap. The wolf lay down on its belly. Turner moved back toward the stirrups. On the basis that I should already be there. Turner climbed onto the wolf. He leaned forward and gripped the saddle's long, horizontal handle. He ignored the seatbelt. He had never needed to strap himself to a horse, after all. The only control he had were the stirrups, but he had no idea what response his prodding and spurring would elicit. And why are you not there? Faye said that we stayed behind for unfinished business. Turner gently pressed in on the stirrups. Pup stood. It was a sensation like none Turner had felt before. It was like a boat rising up on a steep wave, only to stay there, riding the wave to shore. Turner decided that he ought to start off using the seatbelt. When he was securely fastened down, Turner pressed the stirrups again, and the wolf plodded toward the door. They walked through the gate. Turner wanted the wolf to stop beside Hassan, but he had no idea how to communicate this desire. Whoa, he said. Stop. Back. Stay. The wolf turned its head. It looked up at Turner with one curious eye. Stop, Turner repeated. Please. The wolf paused. Pup sat on its belly again, though his twitching tail made clear his discomfort. Hassan grinned. He began to pass up cargo. Bedroll, repeater rifle, canned meat and beans, hardtack. Puts those in the bean cans or soak them in water to loosen them up, if you value your teeth. When the bags were secured beneath the saddle straps, Turner donned his father's bandolier. The leather strap went over one shoulder and rested on his opposite hip. It had more bullets than Turner hoped to use, and a service revolver that bore 23 cross marks on its ivory handle. 
Turner tried not to guess what those marks represented. I'm not worth all this, Turner muttered. Leave that for the wolf to decide. Hassan backed away and gave Turner a palm-out salute. Not one of us controls our inheritance. Some are born sharecroppers. Some are born bankers. It is how you work with your inheritance that defines you. My intention, Turner thought. Take care of the Swifts. It is not as though I have some other family to take care of. Hassan grinned and attempted an Ulgrad accent. I am, though, Hassan Kur, said by the Torah Evango to be well-connected in the marketplaces of Ulgrad. Goodbye. Truly this time, Hassan's spectacles shone in the sun. It is as you say. You should already be where you want to go. Turner nodded. Without thinking, he ignored the stirrups and leaned forward. Let's go, he whispered. And that's the end of part three. Ooh, boy. We're, we're putting them through it. Um, if you if you like what you heard, if you think it's worth a free hour of your time, like give it a share, give it a like, and uh, drop your thoughts down in that little comment box wherever you got one. I would absolutely adore engaging with you. I would also love if all of y'all would be talking with one another about what you liked, what you didn't, uh, what you were hoping for, what ended up happening, and how it disappointed you to no end. Um, man, I just love to hear anything other than crushing silence during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I wish you well. I hope you're doing all right. Yeah, that's, that's all for today. Tune in tomorrow for part four of the four-part series of book. All right, love y'all.